The version of We Shall Overcome that you're hearing right now was recorded in 1963, the year of the March on Washington, and you've probably heard it before. That year, some 250,000 people linked arms and swayed together, singing this song. They were singing it as they awaited Martin Luther King Jr.'s legendary I Have a Dream speech. But only six years earlier, Martin Luther King Jr. was hearing this song for the very first time. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. He heard it from the legendary folk singer Pete Seeger at a social justice workshop in the mountains of Monteagle, Tennessee. In 1957, King was just starting to emerge as a civil rights leader, mostly for his work in the Montgomery bus boycott with Rosa Parks. Actually, Rosa Parks was there when Martin Luther King first heard We Shall Overcome. They were at the Highlander Folk School, a leadership training center which held workshops on issues like integration and workers' rights. It wasn't Rosa's first time there. Just four months before she refused to give up her seat on the bus, she attended a Highlander Folk School workshop on desegregation. Driving back through the Appalachian Mountains that September day in 1957, King hummed the tune to We Shall Overcome. It really sticks with you, doesn't it? He said. This catchy tune is the hero of our story. Like most folk songs, it wasn't written by a single person, and its origins are nearly impossible to trace. Some musicologists argue that the song came from classical hymns of the 18th century. This one, a Sicilian mariner's hymn called O Sanctissima, made its way to some black Baptists and Methodist churches in the early 1900s. Others trace it back to the Negro spirituals. Here is Paul Robeson singing one called No More Auction Block. No more auction block for me. No more. Here's another one called I'll Be Alright. I'll be alright. I'll be alright. I'll be alright someday. There's a song by Louise Shropshire from the 1930s called If My Jesus Wills, and the lyrics are, I'll overcome, I'll overcome, I'll overcome someday. If my Jesus wills, I do believe, I'll overcome someday. We can try to trace the genealogy of the song from Shropshire's version to what we now know as We Shall Overcome. Louise Shropshire came from generations of slaves and sharecroppers, and she had a gift for music. She had been composing hymns and choral arrangements almost all her life. She even directed the choir at the Revelation Baptist Church alongside gospel legends like Thomas A. Dorsey. Shropshire was committed to the civil rights struggle and was close friends with men like Martin Luther King. According to Pete Seeger, it's possible that she taught the song to Lucille Simmons and Delphine Brown, an exchange that began the spread of the song into activist communities. 
Lucille Simmons and Delphine Brown were members of the Food and Tobacco Workers Union of Charleston, South Carolina, a group composed mainly of Southern black women. They fought against unfair wages and poor working conditions by staging protests and marches. At these marches, the women would hold picket signs, chant, and often sing. They sang labor songs, spirituals, church songs they heard from gospel choirs, fragments of what would become the freedom songs. At a 1947 protest, Simmons and Brown were eager to keep their morale high, so they improvised around a church song they knew called I'll Overcome. They changed some of the lyrics so that they applied to the unions. It wasn't just an uplifting church hymn anymore. For the first time, it became a protest song. I'll Overcome was now We'll Overcome. It was in this version that the song reached the Highlander Folk School, where unionizing and workers' rights were the key issues. The school was founded by a man named Miles Horton, along with his colleagues Don West and Jim Dombrowski. Horton was born into a poor white family in Savannah, Georgia. When he was 27, he founded the Highlander Folk School. The school's mission was to educate leaders in social justice, mostly people indigenous to poor southern communities. It started out largely teaching about labor and union organizing, but over time, it shifted its focus to civil rights-related issues like integration and voter registration. Along with its founding political tradition, also came the beginning of Highlander's musical legacy, thanks to Miles' wife, Sylvia. The two of them met when Sylvia came to Highlander for a workshop in the early 1930s. She had been thrown out of her family's house for trying to organize the coal mine where her father worked. Zilfia's interest in social justice was often linked to her interest in folk culture. While her husband talked to the men and women who came to the workshops about union organization and workers' rights, she was asking them what kinds of music they knew and what songs they sang in their communities. In the style of a primitive folk musicologist, she learned the songs, wrote them down, and taught them to the other students. One of these songs was We Shall Overcome, which became the school's unofficial theme song during its civil rights years in the late 1950s. I talked to Claiborne Carson, a professor of history at Stanford and the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute about We Shall Overcome and the legacy of the Highlander Folk School. Here's Professor Carson. And it's, and it's a creative process. It, it's rare that you at least at the, in the early days of the movement, it was rare that somebody just sat down and wrote a freedom song. Usually it was adapted from something that was there before. And that was certainly true of, of We Shall Overcome. I think what happened was that at Highlander, it kind of reached its final point, that people wrote it down and, and wrote the lyrics and kind of captured where it was in the late 1950s. And, it caught on. It's a very simple song. In 1956, Sylvia Horton died unexpectedly. Suddenly, Highlander was without a musical director. Needing someone to continue the legacy of Sylvia and of Highlander's musical tradition, Miles turned to Guy Carawan, a folk singer and musicologist. I talked to his wife Candy at their home, a little log cabin looking over the Smoky Mountains. It's tucked behind the dirt roads of the Highlander Folk School now the Highlander Research and Education Center, where the two of them are still living. Here's Candy. 
when Guy came, with a background, he had studied a lot of folklore at UCLA, and, and he had listened to a lot of field recordings from the South, both uh, black, white, uh, lots of whatever traditions were alive in the South. He familiarized himself with kind of what was in the South, so he was able, as groups were at Highlander, to really draw out and ask people about what cultural richnesses they were bringing with them. And then, you know, he had been part of the folk revival and he particularly learned a lot of labor songs, been very inspired by people like Pete Seeger who already used music, you know, in um, social struggle. So he had songs that he could then pass on. He learned these songs from people like Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, and Dave Van Ronk in the Greenwich Village folk revival scene of the 1950s. At clubs like the San Remo Cafe at Bleecker and McDougal Street, they would meet up and play music with other folk singers, hippies, and blues artists. It was here that the songs of the Black American musical tradition were brought back into popular consciousness. These songs were transformed through an interchange of different musical styles. It was in Greenwich Village that Guy Carawan was immersed in a pattern of communal artistry, a pattern he brought with him as Highlander Folk School's new musical director. So at Highlander, I think that's uh, kind of the pattern <laughs> that was developing as people came from Southern communities, black communities, to get some of those songs going. And then sometimes Guy would introduce the idea that by changing a few words, suddenly it's a freedom song. There's something about singing that puts people on, a, on an equal basis. This is Clay Carson again at Stanford. I mean, one of the things that I think you, you find, at least I found, is that singing was important as a way of feeling that you're part of this larger whole. Um, it, it kind of gives you a sense of solidarity with other people. Two of the people who really had a lot to do with helping to build an infrastructure to carry the movement forward were women, Septa McClark and Ella Baker. But Ella Baker had been coming to Highlander and she'd seen Guy in this role of uh, teaching songs and, and also supporting people with their songs. So she is the one that said to him, I want you to come to Raleigh, you know, because we're calling a meeting through SCLC uh, to bring youth together from across the South who've been involved in the sit-ins and um, this would be the formation of SNCC, you know, she didn't know, know it at the time, but she wanted Guy to be there to just play this role of teaching the songs. So Guy comes to the founding convention of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC and arguably the most influential organization of the civil rights movement. On stage, he sings a lot of freedom songs, like I'm Gonna Sit at the Welcome Table and Eyes on the Prize. The crowd is receptive, often singing along, and sometimes even standing up and clapping. But it's when he starts singing We Shall Overcome that they really get rolling. The whole room rises, joins arms, and sings in a grand echoing unison. And it's in this moment that We Shall Overcome was solidified not just as the theme song of the Highlander Folk School, but the anthem of an entire movement.
Solidified might not be the best word for what happened to the song at SNCC. The song continued to change even after it was introduced to the larger movement. Back at Highlander, lyrics were constantly being added, sometimes by Pete Seeger and Guy Carawan, but often just by students at the workshops, and in one instance, even by a teenager. Taking a few steps back, the Highlander Folk School never had a great relationship with the Tennessee government. Their progressive organizing around racial integration didn't sit well with Southern conservatives. Not to mention their views on labor organization, at a time when the word labor was virtually synonymous with the word socialist. So the Tennessee government claimed the grounds of Highlander, charging them with illegal distribution of alcohol. They turned the electricity off and stormed into the Highlander buildings with padlocks and handcuffs. But there was this teenage girl, this girl named Mary Ethel Dozier, who linked arms with her friends around one of the buildings and started to sing, We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid today. The power of We Shall Overcome stretched far beyond the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Its explosive influence brought it to the March on Washington, to the Newport Folk Festival, and even into speeches by Martin Luther King and President Lyndon B. Johnson. There's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South. I don't know if you've heard it, but it has become the theme song. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. No, I've joined hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. It made its way around the world to struggles in South Africa, India, China, and Latin America. It was sung in protests for issues ranging from environmentalism to immigrant rights. Even today, the song continues to be a part of these movements. And, And so fast forward 50 years later, This is Pam McMichael, the current director of the Highlander Folk School, where they're just as committed as ever to social justice and to music. It's 2010, and I'm in Washington, D.C., and these four undocumented youth have marched from Florida to D.C. to bring attention to justice for immigrants, and particularly as as things were affecting youth. 1,500 miles from Florida to D.C., and the day they arrived in D.C., I had been there in an event the night before, and so I was at this rally in front. And there, and one of the marchers, you know, he's he he said, "There's this um, there's this song. It's been helping me get through." And he started singing the "We Are Not Afraid" verse of "We Shall Overcome." This is that verse that was added by the teenager during the raid of Highlander. And so to think about here's this immigrant youth 50 years earlier when that song was birthed. Um, and so that song's gone around the world and, you know, to South Africa and Ireland and Thailand and, you know, just around the world and then comes back to be sung in front of the White House when under the Obama administration months earlier it had also been sung inside the White House. So there's something about working in Highlander. I have sung We Shall Overcome many times in marches and pickets up in Louisville, Kentucky. And I confess to having sung that song sometimes tired and uninspired Never again, after coming to Highlander and working with the folks I've had the privilege to work with and understanding more the history of that song. 
Understanding the history of this song is not easy. We don't know exactly where it came from, and we can't possibly name all the people who've contributed to it. But we do know the role it's played in the history of social justice around the world. This timeless song is just as powerful today as it was 50 years ago.